it has been a really, really bad 48 hours for Rishi Sunak. Of course, as has been a theme for, for many of our recent shows, it's been a pretty bad two weeks for Rishi Sunak. He's been coming out with some appalling policies, abandoning Britain's poor. You know, To be honest, nearly everyone living in Britain is struggling with this cost of living crisis. But now, um, a new scandal. His wife is a non-dom. And also, he had a green card for the first seven years he was an MP. So the Americans thought he was a permanent resident there. Very odd. And that's going to be our main story for tonight. We do have an exclusive for you first, though. You want to make sure you listen close to that important story. I'm joined all night by Barnaby Rain. How are you doing, Barnaby? Delighted as ever to be with you. And on this Friday, good Shabbos to you, Michael. We're going to kick off the show tonight with a Navarra Media exclusive. It concerns Caterpillar. They're a multinational, multi-billion dollar firm that makes mining and construction equipment, amongst other things. I'm sure you'll recognize the logo. And next week, workers at two of its Northern Ireland factories are going on 17 days worth of strikes. That's over pay and conditions. But Caterpillar have other plans. Navarra Media have seen emails showing that Caterpillar have plans to ship over scab labor to break the strike. And this is where it gets interesting. Who are Caterpillar relying on to take up positions on a Northern Irish factory floor at short notice? It turns out they're asking office workers in Britain. In an email shared with Navarra Media, Caterpillar management asked their office staff across the UK, so that's middle managers, clerical workers, to, to volunteer to make the trip. This is what the email said. We are asking for volunteers from our salaried and management teams across UK facilities to perform the roles of production employees at the Springvale facility. Caterpillar's long-standing commitment to our customers and our business requires that we are prepared to continue operations at our facilities in the face of any business interruption, including industrial action. Your leader has additional details and information on the incentives and arrangements that we are putting in place for individuals who can volunteer. So, to be clear, Caterpillar have asked people whose jobs involve sitting at a desk to go to Northern Ireland and break a strike by doing skilled, manual jobs involving heavy machinery that they've never used before. It doesn't sound very safe to me. And the dangers of this strategy have been shown before. Last year, when Caterpillar's competitor John Deere faced similar strikes in the US, they tried the same tactic. But within hours of the first shift, an unqualified office worker crashed a tractor inside the factory, and there were many injuries, including one person getting very severely hurt after their arm got caught in a machine. Details of other injuries are blurry, as John Deere would go on to make all accident reports strictly confidential. Of course, all this context begs the question, why would a British-based office worker decide to get their hands dirty on a potentially dangerous Northern Irish factory floor? Well, Caterpillar have tried to make the deal financially worthwhile for any potential strike breakers. We understand that volunteer scabs would be paid a £12 hourly bonus on top of their usual salary. They'd be accommodated in hotels and security would be arranged to take them back and forth across the picket line. If I were told that security was needed to get me back and forth across a picket line, that would probably be a bit of a red flag, but we'll, we'll see if anyone takes up these offers. And it, of course, all of this, you'll know already, comes only three weeks after P&O used security guards to move replacement labor onto its ships after sacking 800 people with no notice. Most of those ferries, it's important to note, are still not operating. And what I think is so striking about this particular Caterpillar scheme, besides its obvious grossness in the same way that the P&O strategy was, was gross, is just how little it shows managers seem to think of their skilled factory workers. Clearly they think anyone could do the job and that any old office worker in London or Manchester would be able to operate heavy machinery at the drop of a hat. And it makes me wonder whether this disregard for the skills and experience of factory workers could perhaps be why Caterpillar employees need to go on strike in the first place. Well, after the decades-long destruction of organized labor, this is the predictable consequence. The labor market as a playground for capitalists with workers weakened, which transforms the experience of a new crisis now. I'm glad we're covering this. It's important that we're even covering this because most of our media play spats and gossip from our rulers in an endless cycle so that massive processes transforming the world of work can pass by with barely any comment, which means people suffering turn on their TVs and get the message that their suffering isn't real news, while never hearing about anyone else going through the same thing. It's a kind of ideological filtration mechanism dampening uh, fires of anger. Think of some recent examples of this. 
become familiar with that phrase fire and rehire, where bosses tear up contracts to replace them with worse ones and people have to accept them or lose their jobs. British Airways did it. Tesco did it. British Gas did it. So the people raising your energy bills and squeezing you are the same people squeezing their workers too. 9% of workers have experienced that fire and rehire indignity since 2020 at a UC investigation found. Government refused to ban the practice despite several opportunities in parliament to do so. But there's another danger too, which is bosses taking advantage of hardship at the moment of the soaring cost of living and people's need for extra cash to trample on workers. And if they won't accept it, just to find others who will. So this is how Amazon long ran their warehouses, where they would hire agency workers on short-term contracts, tell them if they did really well in uh, rushing around the warehouse, not taking proper toilet breaks, delivering packages, they might have a permanent job. And then at the end of it, fire almost all the workers or all the workers and get a new batch in again to press them and push them to work really hard in desperate need for a job. The indignity of it is quite striking. P&O, as you mentioned, hired agency staff for £1.81 an hour to replace more secure workers. Government promised to sue them, took the good headlines, and now has gone quiet. Well, in the last quarter of 2021, Caterpillar reported profits up 23% on the year before with annual profits of $51 billion. But they see workers organizing as a threat to those riches. So they want to smash the threat. This is as much class war as any picket line. And they hope to take advantage of people's financial desperation to win a kind of skirmish in a class war. So this is a scene from these new times of crisis in an economy with profoundly unequal levels of wealth and power and a government committed to maintaining that basic model. That's the multi-layered crisis, political and economic, that we face now. And the suffering of workers at Caterpillar is one among many examples of it. Of course, I'm sure, I have no doubt that Caterpillar would say that this scheme does not put anyone in danger. I would find that incredibly difficult to believe. It's worth mentioning we, we did put this story to them and, and haven't yet got a response. I do want to say, though, in, in good news, well, it's, it's qualified good news, the John Deere strike ended after 35 days with striking workers getting substantial pay rises, improved healthcare, and improved pension terms. So perhaps Caterpillar will similarly find they made a poor decision when they treated their skilled workers as wholly replaceable. So hopefully this will fail. Obviously, solidarity with all the, the workers in Northern Ireland going on strike. If you're interested to read more on this story, you can do by heading to navarromedia.com. There's an exclusive report by my colleague and Tisky Sour researcher, Stephen Methben. Um, and it's worth saying we were put onto this story by one of our viewers. So if one of you out there has something that you think would make a good story, do get in touch. And one more thing to say, which relates to what Barnaby was saying. Not much gets written about labour disputes. You know, it's something which has disappeared from the media. We often say on this show, we want to start doing more original reporting. One of the things that original reporting requires is people to research the stories, to write the stories like Stephen, but also just as important is a legal department. Because when we're writing these stories, when, you're t when we're telling you about these stories, if someone else hasn't written it first, we need to be super, super watertight so that they don't try and come after us. So that's all the more reason I hope for you to go to navarromedia.com slash support um, and don't know anything or, you know, our, our core ask really um, is for the equivalent of one hour's wage a month. But we do appreciate any amount so we can continue doing the journalism we do and do more original journalism as well. Let's go to our next story. Akshata Murthy is the billionaire wife of Chancellor Rishi Sunak, and she's been in the press a fair amount recently. First, it emerged that the company she part-owned, called Infosys, was doing business in Russia even after her husband had called for companies to withdraw. Now, it's emerged she's signed up to a scheme which allows her to avoid tax on her international income. That, of course, includes the estimated £12 million she made from Infosys last year. That's right, the wealthy wife of the man who tells you how much tax to pay doesn't pay any UK tax on millions of pounds of her income. This is all possible because Akshatamurti has non-DOM status. This means that while she resides in the UK and indeed lives in a state-owned house, for most tax purposes, she is counted as being domiciled elsewhere. Simply put, being a non-DOM means the money you make abroad stays abroad and the British state has nothing to do with it. To enjoy the privileges of being a non-DOM, someone must show they are a permanent resident of a foreign country to which they plan to return. And they also have to pay the Treasury an annual fee of £30,000. For Murti, this was a financial no-brainer, The Guardian report. Murti has collected £54.5 million in dividends from Infosys since 2015, the earliest date for which the relevant information is available. Had she been paying UK tax on that income, she would have been liable for as much as £20 million. So this was 
very financially advantageous for her, to say the least, or at least according to those Guardian estimates. It is, of course, important to note that by gaining non-DOM status, Murti has done nothing illegal. It's allowed under UK tax law to live in Britain full-time and use Britain's public services, all while paying absolutely zero tax on what's likely your main source of income. But just because something is legal, that doesn't mean it's moral. And this whole story most certainly stinks. In the wake of the revelation, Sunak gave an interview to The Sun. He's dismissed the charges as a smear. Apparently, truthfully, talking about his wife's tax status should be off limits. He did nonetheless try to defend her, saying every single penny that she earns in the UK, she pays UK taxes on. Of course she does. And every penny that she earns internationally, for example in India, she would pay the full taxes on that. That is how the system works for people like her who are international, who have moved here. Now this is an interesting claim because Murti's non-DOM status doesn't necessarily mean she will be paying tax in India. If she were, she would still be saving money. Tax on dividends in India are 20%, while they would be 39.5% in Britain for someone in her situation. But it's also possible Murti could be saving even more. That's because it's still unconfirmed whether her Infosys dividends are registered in India or elsewhere. As a non-DOM, Murti could just as easily have registered in a tax haven like Monaco or the Cayman Islands and pay zero tax on the dividends she receives each year. And it's worth noting, Murti is no stranger to tax havens. In 2020, The Guardian reported that Murti owned 5% of international market management, a company which planned to build dozens of restaurants across India. But they discovered that the business was not registered where those restaurants would be. Rather, they were registered in Mauritius. The Guardian at the time reported, after reviewing the IMM structure, experts from the Indian Revenue Service and the Independent Commission For the reform of international corporate taxation, a campaign group concluded the arrangement could reduce the taxes payable on any profits in India. By setting up letterbox companies in Mauritius, essentially shell companies, with no staff and no trading activity, investors can channel money from Indian businesses to the tax haven. Investments rooted through Mauritius are estimated to have cost India between $10 billion and $15 billion over the last 20 years in lost capital gains, dividends tax and tax on interest and royalty payments. I'm sure, as you can imagine, Ashkata, Akshata Murphy will, will say in response to that, oh, I only own 5%, I don't have any control over this business. We've heard that before when it came to Infosys in Russia. She ended up doing a U-churn because obviously these things do matter, whether or not you are the CEO of that company. According to the BBC, it's worth noting, Labour have written to the Chancellor asking him to confirm where Murti is registered for tax purposes. Is it India? Is it a tax haven? Is it America? He's yet to respond. And this is by no means the fishiest part of the defence from the Sunaks. When the story first broke, this was the response from Akshata Murti's spokesperson. Akshata Murti is a citizen of India, the country of her birth and parents' home. India does not allow its citizens to hold the citizenship of another country simultaneously. So according to British law, Ms Murti is treated as non-domiciled for UK tax purposes. She has always and will continue to pay UK taxes on all her UK income. The implication there is that Murti is automatically a non-dom because she has Indian citizenship and that she could only stop being a non-dom if she gave it up. It was a line which Rishi Sunak repeated in an interview with The Sun. He said, it wouldn't be reasonable or fair to ask her to sever ties with her country because she happens to be married to me. She loves her country like I love mine. I would never dream of giving up my British citizenship and I imagine most people wouldn't. Now, that all sounds extremely reasonable, extremely honourable, even. The problem, it's complete nonsense, as explained by the BBC. Non-DOM is a description of tax status and has nothing to do with one's chosen nationality, citizenship or resident status, although it can be affected by these factors in the sense that it can be easier to qualify for these things if you've got citizenship elsewhere. The crux, though, there, the significant bit there, being a non-DOM, has nothing to do with where someone is from, and multiple tax experts have explained Murti could choose to pay UK tax on her entire income without that having any effect whatsoever on her ability to retain her Indian citizenship or to return to India in the future. And that all means, and this is pretty significant, we can only conclude either Rishi Sunak, who is of course in charge of our tax system, has no idea how our tax system works, or 
The man is lying. You decide which one you think is most likely. While you do that, let's go to some of the political reactions. I think it's very important in politics, if you possibly can, uh, to try to keep people's families out of it. What I will say is that uh, Rishi and I are working very hard on a massive long-term British energy security strategy. That's what uh, we're focused on. That was Boris Johnson, who won't confirm how many children he's had, saying we should keep families out of politics. And obviously, that supposed principle makes even less sense when it comes to money than it does with, say, infidelity. A person's income affects their entire household, which is why the ministerial code requires a minister to declare their partner's financial affairs, and why HMRC asks how much your partner earns when they decide whether or not you qualify for benefits. Kwasi Kwarteng, the business secretary, was equally unconvincing. How does it look to the British public that while they're being asked to pay more tax from yesterday, um, the, the wife of the man who is asking us to do that is earning millions from overseas investments and not paying a penny? So she's a... Uh, I looked at her statement uh, yesterday. She made it very clear uh, that as an Indian national, she can't have dual citizenship. Um, and she's got a non-dom status here in the UK. As we've already mentioned, Murti's citizenship does not mean she has to be a non-dom. And so the business secretary joins the chancellor in not understanding how the British tax system works. It's phenomenal. Someone who does understand, though, is Ed Miliband. There are lots and lots of people, Kay, who are citizens of other countries not UK citizens, but who pay taxes here. You don't, you don't have to be a non-dom. You don't have to be a non-dom. It's not, you're not forced to be it. You choose to do it. In fact, you pay a little bit of money up front, or start, quite a lot of money, actually, up front. Yeah, yeah, quite a lot of money up front to get to be non-dom status, and it's to save you money, you know, in, in, your, in your overall tax bill. Look, I, I think there are quest- legitimate questions that need to be asked of Rishi Sunak about this. Keir Starmer wasn't buying the line that the Chancellor's wife shouldn't be scrutinised. Everybody um, is struggling with the cost of living crisis. The prices are through the roof, wages are through the floor. The Chancellor has chosen to increase taxes. There's no argument to say that those who've had their tax increase aren't entitled even to know if the Chancellor's family himself are taking or making use of schemes to reduce their own tax burden. That isn't about attacking anybody. It's about basic accountability, basic transparency, basic fairness for those that are facing a real struggle with their family finances. And if he or his family have taken advantage of those tax arrangements, should he resign? Well, we need to look at the answers that he gives. At the moment, uh, this is not complicated. Um, There are simple questions. We need simple answers from the Chancellor and his family. Barnaby, your comments on Akshata Murthy's tax status. Well, they pay £30,000 to avoid £20 million in taxes for the public services the rest of us use. Let's just remember how this couple, Sunak and Murthy, spend some of that money. They were recently featured in the magazine of Winchester, an elite private school that Rishi Sunak attended, being celebrated as part of a small club of people who'd given more than £100,000 to that school. So money that could have gone to state schools struggling now for funds is kept from those schools, from those public services, and instead, the billionaire and her husband give it to their favourite elite private school. That payment to avoid tax legally is a political choice. The same governments who chase every penny in tax and benefits for working-class people sign sweetheart deals with companies like Amazon and Google to avoid tax bills, and then they carve out a special category for billionaires, and most UK billionaires use it, to protect their wealth from tax. So every pound lost this way to the NHS and to our schools has to be paid by someone else, or we all pay the price in struggling public services. So that non-dom status is a kind of special fund for the super rich established by the state and extending right into the home of the man responsible for our taxes, a man who spends his money helping institutions that exist to perpetuate privilege. Do you remember the row over second jobs for MPs? The people who write the laws that took 20 quid a week from families on universal credit protested that their 80k a year wasn't enough, so they needed to take on lucrative lobbying work, poisoning democracy. And the double standard was insulting to watch MPs on our TV screens explain they just had to work uh, in lucrative second jobs because they couldn't survive on 80k while taking money from the very poorest. Well, now the Chancellor finds every excuse for his wife to store tens of millions in unpaid tax, while most adults on benefits are in working households and punished immediately if they take on a bit of extra work. But here there's also an added dimension to the double standard. 
which is that Sunak asks our sympathy for foreigners when it's his billionaire wife, while refugees are banned from working and pushed into destitution. So one striking feature of class society is a kind of moral relativism, where we're invited to judge the greed or the violence of the powerful with sensitivity and sympathy, not to leap into knee-jerk anger, but to find the nuances and understand. But the actions of the poor are suspected and harassed and punished like criminal runts who understand only force. That's the kind of offensive double standard at work here. The defense that's made of it, look, you, know, you, might, you might find this um, distasteful, but this was all above board. She didn't break any laws. Well, the response to that is probably, well, we should change those laws. And then the response to that is maybe it's going to be harder to change those laws where the guy in charge of those laws, the guy who runs the treasury, is married to someone benefiting from them. So that, that's why the conflict of interest really, really matters here, because this is a bad law which should be changed. And I think, you know, having someone in 11 Downing Street who's benefiting from that bad law, you know, that's not a great situation to be in. And we're going to talk a bit more about this story, and especially what I think has been most embarrassing is probably the Tories' incredibly crude weaponization of identity politics to defend this multimillionaire avoiding or paying English tax on some of her income. This was Energy Minister Greg Hans speaking to Radio 4. I think I'm saying that um, that some of the commentary around this has been a bit unpleasant. I think some of the uh, sort of attacks on her for being a, a slight implication that there's something not right about her being a foreign national. And that I find, and my wife is a foreign national, I, I find that aspect of things a little bit unpleasant myself. I just always find it so entertaining when like Tory politicians, my wife is a foreign national. It's like when um, Jeremy Hunt forgot his wife was Japanese and said she was Chinese or the other way around. I can't remember exactly which one it was. Of course, no one has a problem with Akshata Murphy being a foreign national. We have an issue with her choosing to take on non-DOM status. It's a choice. It has nothing to do with where she's from. Sunak himself also intimated towards the racism angle, telling the son, people, I don't think, have an issue with the fact that there's an Indian woman living in Downing Street. I would hope that most fair-minded people would understand, though I appreciate that it is a confusing situation that she is from another country. Mate, it's not a confusing situation that she's from another country. No one is confused. No one's like, oh, it's really confusing. Rishi Sunak's wife is Indian. I cannot, I can't grasp that. How, how could that, how could that, what a confusing situation. Rishi Sunak's got an Indian wife. No one is confused. What's confusing is that the chancellor doesn't know how the tax system works in the country where he is in charge of the tax system. That's the confusing part. No, no one is confused that your wife is from another country. How ridiculous and patronizing. While some have implied Murty's critics are xenophobic, others have gone for the sexism angle. Foreign Minister James cleverly tweeted, I really thought that we had moved on from the notion that wives are merely an extension of their husbands. Seems that Labour didn't get that memo. And there was a great reply to this that got a lot of retweets from a user called Sarah. So when a man is made redundant, I assume you won't be looking at his wife's income anymore when deciding if he can claim benefits. The, the absolute hypocrisy of all of this. When it's their rich and powerful friends, they say, oh, how dare you ask someone how much their wife earns or ask a wife how much their husband earns. This is exactly what the benefits and, and tax system does all the time. If, if, if you're on benefits and your partner gets a pay rise, you know, by law, you have to tell the tax office, you have to tell HMRC. If you don't, you might well get a fine. You'll probably have to pay back a load of money. It'd be very financially difficult for you. But when it comes to the rich and powerful, no, no, no. You, you can't say, when the HMRC says, what's the joint income of your household? You can't fill out that form and say, oh, I'm not going to tell you that. My wife's income has nothing to do with my income and uh, my income has nothing to do with hers. You would get a fine for that, for, for filling it in wrong. You, but they think it's fine. Um, let's move on to some more re recent developments. There have been some. After an initial leak to Sky, Rishi Sunak has confirmed that he held a US green card for the first year and seven months of his chancellorship. The Independent had an entertaining write-up of the significance of this. Um, so they write, holders of the green card are required to file US tax returns on their worldwide income and also to make a legal commitment to make the US your permanent home. The pledge would seemingly be at odds with Mr. Sunak's position as Chancellor of the United Kingdom, being a member of Parliament since 2015 and Minister since 2018, and the fact that he lives on Downing Street. That does seem rather odd, doesn't it? It's difficult to square that with being a permanent resident of the United States. Akshata Murthy also held a green card and may still do. She hasn't confirmed either way. An interesting twist here is that the US doesn't have the equivalent of non-DOM status and therefore holding a green card would have required the Sunaks to pay tax on their worldwide income to the US. 
Sunak's spokesperson said, all laws and rules have been followed and full taxes have been paid where required in the duration he held his green card. Rishi Sunak followed all guidance and continued to file US tax returns, but specifically as a non-resident in full compliance with the law. So, were Sunak and his wife happy to pay tax to the US on their international earnings, but not to the UK where they live and where he's a very senior politician in the government who actually makes rules on tax. Boris Johnson has since said that he didn't know about Murty's non-DOM status, so I expect the next controversy to be whether Johnson is lying, wouldn't be a surprise, or if not, why Sunak kept this information back from his boss. That also wouldn't be a surprise. I have one more update for you as well. This broke while we were live, which is that, according to the BBC, Murty has said she will now um, pay UK tax on her overseas income. So presumably, I'm um, giving up her non-DOM status. She said she doesn't want her you know, financial affairs to be a distraction for her husband. Now, the obvious question here, you know, Murti, according to your spokesperson, the reason you couldn't stop being a non-DOM, the reason you couldn't pay UK tax on your international earnings is because then you'd have to give up your in- Indian citizenship. So, you know, unless you learned something since Wednesday and now, in the last two days, either you were lying then, or you've suddenly decided, oh, actually, I, didn't, I don't really want my Indian citizenship after all. Of course, she doesn't have to make that decision because it has nothing to do. She, she could have paid tax for the past seven years. Mind-blowing. It's a striking double standard that extends the class double standard of MPs bleating that they need second jobs because 80K isn't enough to live on. While they take money in a desperately needed uplift to universal credit, they remove from, from many, many people. We get now the extension of that into a kind of culture war where the same politicians who attack migrants, who leave migrants to drown in the channel, then tell us who are worried about uh, money lost to our public services that we have a problem with people not born in Britain. It is, of course, macabre. But this isn't just a kind of gossip story about a famous couple. When Rishi Sunak sits down at his desk, he has the British economy to manage. Whose interests are at the front of his mind? That's the question. Who does he care about? Who does he represent? Who does he have to face that evening at cocktail parties and at the opera and smile as he reassures them that he has their back? Well, he gives over 100k to Winchester School, so that gives you some idea. You know, we hear a lot about the death of class, but the British ruling class feels more organic solidarity with one another than anyone else I've ever met. They defend one another as if their wealth depends on it, because it does depend on it. So that's the story here. It's about class, just like Partygate was. And there's an irony there. You know, Sunak's stock rose during Partygate because at least he didn't seem like the reckless party type. And now Johnson may be leaking this to undermine him as a future Tory leader, but they're all the same. Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson call themselves low-tax conservatives, and they've managed tax increases in two years as big as New Labour managed in 10, tax rises worth 2% of GDP. They've given us the highest tax burden in 70 years. And in March, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, the IFS, warned next month will mark the beginning of a steep ascent in the path of UK taxation. That was a month ago. So just think, We're told to be scared of back to the 70s with Corbyn. But the special thing about this crisis is that most of those tax rises fall on the less well-off, like the national insurance hike, and that the excuse is that we have an emergency of a a pandemic, which was a genuine uh, massive crisis. But their blinkered austerity ideology means they want to pass on the cost of that crisis quickly to most people in the form of tax rises, which no other major European country is doing as steadily. So we face here a group of people who know what class they represent and who respond to a crisis, never let a crisis go to waste, uh, by ensuring that other people, not them, pay the price for it. We've got a, another breaking story. God, they keep coming in. And this is from The Independent. This is a quote from The Independent. Trusts in the British Virgin Islands and Cayman Islands, created to help manage the tax and business affairs of his wife, Akshata Murti's family interests, note Mr. Sunak as a beneficiary in 2020, according to people familiar with Ms. Murti's financial affairs and evidence reviewed by this publication. So this was, of course, while he was Chancellor, and he was a beneficiary of something based in a tax haven. I love this. People familiar with Ms. Murti's financial affairs. I would love to be someone familiar with Ms. Murti's financial affairs right now. Although I suppose we all, we all are now becoming ever more familiar with them. Hopefully, hopefully more. So I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's a lot in there. When you've got that much money, it does get, it gets quite complicated, you know. Got a feel for these, it's not easy having that much money. Next story. It's probably safe to say that if you're a tenant, you're pretty fed up with Britain's rental market. Renters get a rough ride with minimal rights and extortionate prices, all to line the pockets of someone who probably doesn't need to work for a living. Acorn 
at the Association of Community Organisations for Reform, and they are one of the groups trying to change that. Along with other groups in the Renters' Reform Coalition, they're holding rallies across England this weekend. It's an attempt to influence the government's upcoming Renters' Reform Bill. Earlier today, I spoke to Will Dooley, an ACORN member in Brighton, and asked him exactly what ACORN are proposing. Putting forward some proposals for the upcoming Renters' Reform Bill, which include abolishing Section 21 evictions, open-ended tenancies, a national public register of landlords, and the abolishing the right to rent immigration checks as well. And so what are you doing about it? How are you, what, what's your model of change? How are you going to try and get these policies introduced? Well, ACORN is a community union. We take direct action. Often that involves taking on landlords and letting agents. We go down to their offices, for example, and pick it and talk to the public and make our demands of what we want uh, for our members. Uh, but in the case of this campaign, we are holding a day of action tomorrow with renters rallies across the country in six locations where we'll be putting forward these demands for the renters reform bill and our members will be speaking about their experiences and how they're affected by the issues that the legislation will hopefully address and we'll be putting pressure on local MPs who are in a position of power to influence uh, what goes into this bill. So for example here in Brighton One of our local MPs is Lloyd Russell-Moyle, who is the vice chair of the all-party parliamentary group on private renting. Could I get you to talk a bit more specifically about the renters' reform bill? What is it? What are the problems with it? What do you want to be in it? Well, the government's bringing in this renters' bill as part of its levelling up agenda. And what it probably is hoping is that it will be a fairly meaningless reform that sort of made to look like they're doing something essentially and for us obviously that's not going to be good enough and that's why the renters reform coalition has put forward these proposals that will have an actual meaningful impact on the lives of renters across the country so we know that parliament is full of landlords they're not going to give us these things just because they want to they're they're going to only do this if we demand it of them and if we're organized and I know that just like myself, many Tisky Sour viewers can't stand the current rental system. How do they get involved with your organisation if they want to they wanna change it? Sure. Well, as you say, it's not so much about good landlords or bad landlords, but about the imbalance of power between landlords and their tenants. So the best way to get involved is quite simply join the union. We're open to all people of low and middle income. And yeah, you can do that by going to the website, acornunion.org.uk. And when you've joined, get involved, help other members out in fighting cases and campaigns like this one, and come along to the Day of Action tomorrow, one of our rallies, if you're anywhere near any one of them. So they're happening in Brighton, Leeds, London, Newcastle, Sheffield, and Walsall. So come on down. That was Will Dooley from Acorn and God. I hope they're successful because I really hate renting in this country. The rents are too damn high. That's the fundamental thing for me. They are too damn high. Also, you know, insecure. We could go on. We talk about it a lot on this show because it does animate me. Next story. The Tories' pathetic response to the cost of living crisis will leave millions facing poverty. And now Tory attempts to defend it have made the party a running joke. This was Energy Minister Greg Hands explaining the government's approach to soaring energy bills. Can I just come back to the point about bills, though? Because that's the other really important part of what we're dealing with tonight. And the Chancellor of the Exchequer launched a really important package in February, just two months ago, to deal with the rise in bills. Could not deal with it completely, but actually £9 billion set aside, a £200 discount on energy bills, £150 discount on council tax, additional funds to make sure the most vulnerable are able to give them assistance in paying their the energy bills. £200 is, of course, a loan. It's not a clear. loan. It is a discount, okay, but which will then be taken back. back in the form You're of not a levy. Given it, you have to pay it back. No, that not necessarily like the individual. Loan. It gets taken back at the like at the point house. at which it is levied. Yeah, so are you levy. all shouting something? What are you all shouting? You're saying it's a loan. It's not a loan. It's, it's a loan. Exactly. That's what you're hearing from the. No, audience. it's 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 taken back through a levy. It's not a loan because it doesn't create an <laughs> obligation on the individual to repay. It is actually a levy on the price point uh, at which the bill. But they still is, have to pay it back. 
What's the, the difference? It, it's put on the price point, not on the individual. The individual does not have an obligation to repay. Oh, so we can it say we don't want form, to, if no. we don't want to pay, but we don't have to. No, I'm not saying that. It's no. taken back. <laughs> It's taken back at the point at which it is charged. Yeah? So if it's you not, don't heat not, yourself, if you don't have any heating afterwards, then you don't pay it back. It is not an obligation. That's that, that important. <laughs> that is it, it isn't it? In, That's what you're saying. Okay. It comes in this October. And these are the important things that we've announced to help people with bills. But that's different to the long-term strategy that we've launched today with renewables, nuclear, and making okay. sure we're not increasing our imports of oil and gas. My favourite part of that was actually seeing the Archbishop of Canterbury sort of like really openly chortle at how stupid the Tory minister sounded. To be clear on what the policy is, every household will get £200 off their energy bill this year, but we'll pay that back over the next five years via a levy added to future energy bills, so around £40 a year for five years. As to the politicians' claims you heard there, Greg Hans was right. The policy doesn't mean any of us will formally be in debt to the energy companies, but Emily Formbury was also right. Unless you stop using gas and electricity altogether by, I don't know, dying, you're going to have to pay that £200 back. Barnaby, the Tories are now a laughing stock. Is it deserved? Well, yes, of course it is. But there are bigger issues at stake than just their idiocy. I mean, we're entering a period like the mid-1970s, entangled geopolitical and energy crises, pushing an inflationary spiral. But with a key difference, that that crisis of the 1970s came after 30 years of narrowing income and wealth inequality with a powerful and a fighting labor movement. So this one comes after 50 years of ballooning gulfs between most people and the super rich, with trade unions strangled and gutted by law to keep most people unrepresented. And it's in that context of a crisis, a, a capitalist crisis of the kind that we faced before, but after 50 years of neoliberalism, that we get this particularly noxious situation. A chancellor sitting on 12 million pounds from Russia who declares that some people in this country must shiver now to punish Russia for war in Ukraine. A chancellor whose family fortune avoids tax, telling millions of people watching their taxes rise that he'll bung them a bit of cash and then demand it back. Like any good capitalist, uh, he wants to put us in debt and then profit from it. In France, Price rises in energy have been capped at 4%, even by a right-wing government. The energy company has been asked to take an 8 billion euro hit by a president who admires Thatcher because their energy company EDF is publicly owned and because working class people fight and strike and occupy when the state tries to do capital's bidding and assault their living standards. So that's the particularly awful situation we're in, a gutted network of resistance and a strong and confident capitalist class ensuring that this crisis is an opportunity for the form of class war that we see in fire and rehire, in hiring agency workers, in uh, cutting pay while bills rise and some people make huge profits and then hide them from the tax man. Next story. In his bid to put clear water between himself and Jeremy Corbyn, Keir Starmer has once again thrown Palestinians under the bus. This week he spoke to the Jewish Chronicle and said this. I mean, let me ask you, by extension, a question about Israel. You've spoken yeah. very fondly and warmly about, about Israel. Um, in Israel, as you know... But we have extended family there. Of course, of course. So as, you, as you'll know, you know yeah. citizens of, of Arab origin are represented throughout society, uh, all the way up to being represented in government, uh, Arab ministers in government. Uh, and yet Amnesty International recently released a report where they accused Israel of being an apartheid state. Yeah. That was embraced and supported by many members of your party, particularly on the, on the left. Um, do you agree with them? No. Um, I've been very clear about that, um, and that is not the Labour Party um, position. So um, I was very clear, I think, in my comments to Labour Friends of Israel exactly where I stand on most of the major issues that obviously and understandably um, concern people um, in Israel and beyond Israel. So I was able to address a number of those issues in that speech. And will you make those same points at party conference this year? Yes, I've got no reason not to. I was on the platform when we made the rule change at last year's party conference in relation to the way that we would deal with complaints of anti-Semitism. Did Keir Starmer just commit to using his Labour Party conference speech to attacking Amnesty International for criticising Israeli apartheid? It would seem a strange commitment to me, although we know that, we know that Keir Starmer's commitments don't count for very much. To remind you what Amnesty have said on the issue, whether they live in Gaza, East Jerusalem and the rest of the West Bank or Israel itself, Palestinians are treated as an inferior racial group and systematically deprived of their rights. We found that Israel's cruel policies of segregation, dispossession and exclusion across all territories under its control clearly amount to apartheid. 
the international community has an obligation to act. Amnesty's position has been echoed in reports by Human Rights Watch and the Israeli human rights group Salem. Both have said Israel practice apartheid. Keir Starmer, former human rights lawyer, he disagrees. Finally, you heard Starmer there point to his speech to Labour Friends of Israel as his definitive position on Israel-Palestine. I, I made my position clear in that speech. Well, we discussed that speech at the time. It included statements such as this. We will continue to support Israel's robustious democracy, its independent judiciary, and its commitment to the rule of law. Israel is a nation with a vibrant media, free trade unions, and a lively tradition of debate, dissent, and disagreement, as well as the rights won by the struggle of the women's movement, the LGBT community, and religious and racial minorities. If you're a Labour leader and you're looking to Israel, for an example, of where you know, racial minorities are treated really well, I'm a bit worried about you taking charge of this country. Starmer, in that speech, which we talked about at the time, appalling speech in so many ways, also approvingly repeated Harold Wilson's phenomenally racist claim that Israel was an example of social democrats who made the desert bloom, you know, as if Arabs didn't know how to grow anything, or Palestinians didn't know how to grow anything. There is clearly in this country a hierarchy of racisms. Mesna Cato, an academic at Cambridge, has come up with a very good definition of what she calls anti-Palestinianism, which includes Nakba denial, just as I'm not invited to sit at the dinner table with people who deny the truth of the massacre of my family members in the Holocaust. It should not be forced upon Palestinians that they're expected to hang out with people who think it's legitimate that their family members were ethnically cleansed. That's not to draw uh, to say that these two things are identical. No atrocities in history are identical, although they're the same in scale. Uh, but people who deny atrocities shouldn't be taken as serious, responsible, respectable people. And yet they are. And yet the state that they run is treated as a key Western ally. The definition also includes accusing Palestinians of latent racism without cause, uh, which, is a, which is a common uh, trope and a problem in our politics today. But there's another telling thing here, a subtler instance of this racism. How can Israel be called a democracy? Starmer keeps doing it. Four million people or more live under siege or under direct military occupation ruled by the Israeli state with no political rights or even, Starmer the human rights lawyer, no right to a civilian trial. People under Israeli occupation, Palestinians, are hauled to military courts with a 99% conviction rate. And Israel's the only nation in the world which tries children in front of those military courts. And what of the current Israeli government? Starmer singled it out for praise. It's a government that has banned the six leading human rights organizations in the state of Israel as terrorist organizations. It's approved plans to build 300 illegal homes for settlers in the West Bank while demolishing 17 Palestinian schools in the West Bank, including one funded by the European Union. I think this makes sense only if you understand. And this is why one of the reasons this issue matters so much now in British politics, the kind of lightning rod, is because democracy when it's applied to the state of Israel, it doesn't mean anything about freedom or voting. It's a kind of racialized language. It means the civilized world against the barbarians, right? Democracy is something that, that, that we white Westerners in suits have against the savages and their kind of frightening global supporters. And that's how this projected image of Israel makes sense. This, this very removed image of Israel, the land of Amos Oz, Starmer said in that speech, the land of Yitzhak Rabin, whose supporters get almost no votes in Israel now. The land of the two-state solution, Starmer praised. Though Israel's current prime minister writes articles in the New York Times explicitly ruling out a two-state solution. This kind of strange projection in Israel out of kilter with the facts of a country uh, increasingly moving towards the far right makes sense because Israel serves as a kind of cipher for civilization facing the savage hordes. And Starmer's politics against those like Jeremy Corbyn, whose radicalism involved anti-colonialism, Starmer's politics are all about the defense of Western civilization with all of the violence and power and inequality that involves. You know, the West was his idol, Starmer's spokesman said, after threatening Labour MPs who criticised NATO. Labour now stands behind NATO and the West, he said. People should look at Oliver Eagleton's excellent book coming out soon, The Starmer Project, which is very good on this. This is a politics which is all about the defence of noxious, violent hierarchies, the nation, the West, empire. And Israel is important because it represents that frontier of civilization against the savages, just as the settler colonists in South Africa once did. It'll then be framed as about protecting Jews and we'll get conscripted Jews into that civilizational battle. But it's really about finding a convenient kind of hammer with which to attack Muslims, Arabs, the colonized, and those on the global left who are scary, not for wanting to redistribute wealth, maybe some of that's acceptable, but for challenging the interests of an imperial world system. One thing that really frustrated me about that interview from Keir Starmer was the timing of it as well. And just because it really put in view the contrast between how the political class media pundits treat Palestine and how they treat other issues where a British ally is involved. And why I say this, because as I said, Human Rights Watch is one of the you know, very prestigious organizations that have said that Israel practices apartheid. 
Human Rights Watch, we mentioned on, on Monday's show, because they put out a report earlier this week about war crimes in Butcher. So in, in Ukraine, war crimes committed by the Russian military. Now, we, we presented that in the show. We, you know, we've got no reason to doubt what, what was in it. It seems like a, a good document. And you know, we essentially accept its, its content. But people who don't, there are a few people online who don't, the moment they don't, they're called a conspiracy theorist, a Russian stooge, an acidist, Paul Mason saying, you know, they should be kicked out of the Labour Party. And that's for saying, oh, I don't believe what this human rights organization has said. Now, as I say, I believe what Human Rights Watch said about Butcher, and I believe what they say about Palestine. But Keir Starmer, today, in full public view, has said Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Betzalem, they all say that Israel is an apartheid state. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Now, can you imagine if a mainstream UK politician was asked, Human Rights Watch have said that there were war crimes committed in Butcher. Do you accept that? Imagine if they just said, no, no, our party position is clear. There were no war crimes committed in Butcher. Whatever Human Rights Watch says, they're wrong. What he's done is the equivalent of that, right? It just so happens that the Palestinians aren't our allies and the Ukrainians are. And that means that he's allowed to get away with it. And it is just the, the hypocrisy of it, I find completely mind-blowing. And yes, this is obviously, you know, it's, it's in large part, this is about who Britain is, is allied with. There could also be a hierarchy of racism thing going on here, or just, you know, political opportunism. It doesn't serve anyone with any power. It doesn't serve their interests to say, wait a minute, Keir Starmer, he's, he's ignored what Human Rights Watch said. He's said that all of these human rights experts are, are fools and mistaken. Surely that deserves some scrutiny. No one thinks that's in their interest, who's powerful, but they do think it's worth their time really haranguing Jeremy Corbyn because he signed a stop the war statement that said that maybe NATO was involved in the start of the war. You know, I, I don't actually agree with everything that was in that stop the war statement, but it was way more acceptable than being in an interview, being said, do you accept this very prestigious human rights organization's very well-documented claim that Israel practices apartheid? And you just say, you know, without qualification, without any shame. No, no, we don't. Not our party position. Sorry. This isn't about a party position. It's about facts. Facts on the ground. Do you accept the facts? And no, he doesn't accept the facts. And I don't know why. Is it because he, as Barnaby says, you know, so committed to defending empire? Is it because he's overcorrecting? Because Labour struggled with anti-Semitism stories for five years? I don't know. Barnaby, what makes you think, what makes Keir Starmer think he can get away with this? I think that this is how moral panics work, which is you construct a set of victims who often are, are real victims facing real problems. It, it really is true that there's a problem of anti-Semitism around the world. But you articulate that crisis not as a, a problem that needs to be addressed, but as a resource for worrying about something else. So worrying about anti-Semitism becomes a way of worrying about a crisis of neoliberalism, the return of so-called populism. Class politics gets called anti-Semitic. The headmaster of a leading private school said in a couple of years ago, people complaining about the dominance of private schools in public life were like people complaining about Jews dominating public life in Nazi Germany. So populism, class politics all gets cast as suspect and suspicious. Any kind of punching up is attacking Jews echoing the anti-Semitic view that Jews are all rich and powerful. And then anti-imperialist politics now. This is the, 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 the sort of novelty of adding Zionism and Israel into the mix. Anti-imperialist and anti-colonial politics in a moment where the West is on shaky ground and where American hegemony is declining, all that can be cast as actually the progeny of dodgy, dangerous kind of extremism and fanaticism. So I think it's a comfortable kind of panic that much of our media isn't very interested in questioning because it fits absolutely into the central kinds of liberal ideological matrices of our times. And of course, Jews get thrown under the bus in a certain kind of way. We're conscripted to a panic that isn't really about us. But much, much more egregiously and aggressively, Palestinians, colonized, assaulted, occupied, abused, bombed, killed, get cast utterly under the bus, utterly abused and ignored in order to be attacked, in order to sustain the defense of a noxious right-wing uh, neoliberal and imperial politic. You know, you'll probably notice from this show, regular viewers, I often try and stay regularly relaxed about Labour. You know, it's not my project. Yeah, they haven't said something particularly left-wing. I didn't really expect them to anyway. But it's when Keir Starmer just comes out and it's just like, it does sort of, you know, I feel like my organs are getting kind of, you know, just watching someone so disingenuous about things that matter so much, like I just find it offensive. We're going to breeze through our final story about another moral panic, in fact. In their latest bid to stir up a moral panic around trans people, journalists have taken to asking Labour politicians who can and can't have penises. 
The answers given have tended to be evasive and awkward, but not Emily Thornbury. She gave what I think is the perfect answer to the question on LBC. Emily Thornbury, one once asked, can a woman have a penis, said, people are complex and different. It's up to listeners to decide if I've given a full answer to that. Are you ready to give us a slightly more detailed rather than nuanced answer? Emily Thornbury can. To that question, can a woman have a penis? Most women are like me or the women MPs, you know, or my mum or my daughter. Of course, most women are, you know, biologically adult females. There are, however, a minority of people who are born into the wrong gender, who are deeply unhappy and marginalised people who, frankly, we should have a bit of compassion for and should not be using them in some sort of culture war. You know, women who are trans deserve to be recognised and, yes, you know, therefore some of them will have penises. Frankly, I'm not looking up their skirts. I don't care. What I care about is that they're looked after properly and that they are not used as a political football by a prime minister who ought to know better. Such a good answer, I think. The, the vast majority of women won't have penises. Some who are trans will, but I won't be looking up their skirts. You know, Straight to the point, not evasive. All other Labour politicians have seemed pretty embarrassed to answer that question. Because obviously, some women do have penises because some trans women have penises and trans women are women. So it's, you know, it's what she said is, is uncomplicatedly true. But the whole reason that sort of journalists have been asking the Labour Party that is because they want to whip up fear. They don't really care that they're sort of throwing trans people under the bus to try and get their, their ratings up. But also they know that they're almost daring the Labour politicians to say what they actually believe. And Emily Formbury did it there. She used humour, which I think, you know, makes it more persuasive. And I just thought, you know, spot on. I wish more of them were able to answer questions like that. I think these old men obsessed with penises do need to take it to therapy rather than mask it as a kind of political conversation. I mean, I wish I, wish I was there uh, to talk to this assortment of aging men and to say, you know, people's bills are rising. There's a war on. The seas are rising. The planet's warming. Our police are exposed. Do you care about this for endemic misogyny? And you are obsessed with asking questions about genitalia, with prodding around and inspecting and exploring uh, different people's genitalia, at least verbally. And in doing so, you want to harass one of the most abused groups in our society, a group with higher rates of homelessness, suicide. And so you make life materially worse for people by your kind of prurient obsession with policing the gender binary, your, your, your desperate anxiety about people with the wrong genitalia crossing over that binary. I think it is important to ask serious questions about why this is happening. You know, moral panics respond to the experience of social crises with that comforting provision of an object onto which to project all our anxieties. So spectres of black crime did it in the 1970s, as Stuart Hall and others wrote. Predatory gay men did it in the 1980s, so-called. Single mothers and asylum seekers in the 1990s. Muslims in the 2000s under New Labour. Benefit scroungers in the, tw in the 2010s. Now we have a dizzying array of objects for desperate moral panic in this epoch of crisis. We have swarms of migrants. We have anti-racist traitors to our proud history in Black Lives Matter. We have anti-Semitic Corbynites disloyal to NATO and the West. And now trans people have been added to the list. It's a series of moral panics from an established order that doesn't have a real way of addressing the actual crises people face in their lives. Very important point. Very good point to end the show. Barnaby, it's been a pleasure as always. I'm so glad we've, we've got you on regularly these days. Thank you for joining us it's today. It's a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Have a great weekend, everyone watching. We'll be back on Monday at 7pm. Have a great weekend. We'll see you then. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.